A full moon in Aquarius, a tempest rising in the east, and a new season of the luminaries. This time, it's Eliel Cruz, writer, activist, and lead communications director for the New York Anti-Violence Project. I hope you're as inspired as I am. But first, some thoughts on Global Awakening, Hypochondria, and Tony Collette. Thanks for listening. Okay, welcome to the first episode of the second season of The Luminaries with David Goldberg. That is my name. For now, I wanted to share what's been going on with me, and I'm hoping to be doing these at the start of each episode, sometimes written, sometimes not. Sometimes I will be talking about um, a Keanu Reeves movie I saw recently. Sometimes I'll be talking about myself. I just am trying right now to do this thing where I get out of the habit of writing these like perfectly digestible, easily conclusive um, narrative summations of what I'm going through because I feel like my tendency is to either write these like victimized screeds or these easily resolvable like human triumph of David stories. whenever I'm trying to share myself and I just feel like we're beyond that after this summer. I just feel like what I've learned, which is I think something I've always avoided is that um, like morally and moralistically, if you're alive right now, you cannot really be complete. You know, I'm definitely someone who largely abstains from meat and dairy products. I still eat eggs and I try to thrift shop whenever I can. And I do that so that I can feel morally absolved. Well, I do it for a lot of reasons. I mean, I love thrift shopping and um, eating plant-based stuff makes me feel good, but there's a moral aspect, which is I don't want to be implicated in these two horrific industries that like, you know, people who work in them are obviously very much abused, but that's not, um, that like doesn't make me beyond reproach. And I was, I think I was in a kind of peaceful, dreamy place in May. I mean, I was still going through my, the dramas that I'm always going through, which are with relationships and usually completely in my head, relationships with family, etc. But when, The end of May came and the protests kind of erupted. I just really shut down. And it was because I have to now exist in a world, well, this world has always existed, but I have to exit the delusion and enter the reality of the world where I am culpable and complicit and where I can't make it go away quickly. And I, for a long time, defined myself as someone who there's, you know, I, th- I would never do what that person did to me. Therefore, um, you know, therefore I'm absolved and and therefore I can always be a victim and I am never the abuser. And, you know, it's a privilege to say this, but at age 30, I'm reckoning with the ways that I've been an abuser and they're ways that I've always known about, but they're there and I can't not be white and well-to-do. I can't not have the things I have because of the way I look. I can contribute to changing these systems and circumstances that make the world that way, and I can help elevate others, and I can use my voice to help others, but this is not something that I can fix. And as this goes on, it's likely that I'll only learn more about myself and about my past I mean, there's so much that I've blocked away, I think for a reason, you know, I think about like how many hundreds of weekends throughout 
elementary, middle, high school, college, and my 20s that I visited my brother in prison. And I mean, there's a million things we can get into with that, and I'm sure we will, but you know, my brother's a Jewish person in prison, and he is in, in a Texas prison, and that is just horrific bichlal, that's Hebrew for like generally, but it's not the same as being a, a person of color in a Texas prison, and he, he, a lot of them don't have the support that my brother has, which is um, love, consideration, and resources from um, a family and a community that has access to funds and the ability to make noise when uh, the prisoner they know is abused. And somewhere along the line, I, I blocked a lot of it out. I mean, I blocked, there's a lot that's been blocked out for other reasons, that's for good reasons, but at some point, I didn't want to see the people that I was seeing in in prison. Um, I didn't want to see their suffering, and I didn't want to see their families and their suffering. And I didn't want to be there. Like, my Venus-ruled Taurus that just wants like life to be pretty and beautiful just didn't want to be there. And I understand it, because, like no one should have to be there but i also think like i can't just pretend it doesn't exist um because it makes me uncomfortable and i guess i've been thinking a lot about this lately because well i've been thinking about the places that we're not allowed to go in our minds because there's also another side to that coin which is So my hypochondria, sorry, this is going to be really long-winded, but you're here with me. My hypochondria has totally been off the rails this year. I mean, I just think, like, it's always been a thing, but 2020 and the last, uh, you know, this is the final act in the trilogy of my Saturn return. So this is the year, like, that it has just gone off the rails. Like, whether it was the first round of COVID, which was about five weeks, the second round... Um, any other and in between those and around those almost probably weekly physical maladies we're talking fevers we're talking bizarre head dizziness random nausea that one time I thought I had a UTI hemorrhoids um, etc and you know I've always had uh, kind of classical Jewish hypochondria, which is like, you know, I think it's my means of uh, getting attention and love, but there's another aspect of it, which is I'm someone who uses my body um, or I use my action to get away from myself, which is to say I used to have an eating problem where I would overeat. It wasn't that I would overeat. I would just always think I was starving. And I couldn't tell when I was actually hungry or when I was just anxious. And I'd be up like two or three times in the middle of the night like with this deep, gaping, ravenous hunger. And eventually I realized like the hun that was a function by which I could keep myself from like being here. Um, because there was always this, like, blood sugar crisis. And then after that, I veered all the way around to another place, which was, like, I was go-go dancing, and I was posting a lot of pictures of myself, and I certainly didn't really feel any access to my sexuality, but it was another way of making noise so that I couldn't see anything. Uh, or I couldn't get close to something, you know? And then another thing that I think I've, I'm facing, or I've been facing the last year or so, is money. I would just always be in a money crisis. There would always be something owed. There'd always be, like, this hemorrhaging that I couldn't control. And I, I knew it wasn't just a matter of, like, I need to make a spreadsheet. I knew something was going on there. 
And now I think it's hypochondria, which is that I'm not letting things be still or quiet or peaceful. And there's a reason for that. Awareness of a few things. Awareness of, like I said earlier, my moral complexities, the fact that I have a lot to review, a lot of actions that I've taken and institutions that I have participated in that have directly impacted the lives of people of color in this country, first of all. But there's another side of the awareness, which is I am alive. And I think that I will use whatever it takes to keep me from that awareness. Because knowing that I am alive means that I can change. And it also means that I'm free. And it means that the nightmare could be over and that I could be happy and I could have a voice. I could stand up for something that means something to me. I could do work that's important to me and that I could love actively and receive love. And there's this quote, um, I mean, this is just incredible. I just want to read this or at least some of this to you. Um, a friend sent it to me from an interview with Adam Phillips. <clears throat> an appetite is fearful because it connects you with the world in very unpredictable ways. Winnicott says somewhere that health is much more difficult to deal with than disease. And he's right, I think, in the sense that everybody is dealing with how much of their own aliveness they can bear and how much they need to anesthetize themselves. We all have self-cures for strong feeling. Then the self-cure becomes a problem, in the obvious sense that the problem of the alcoholic is not alcohol but sobriety. Drinking becomes a problem, but actually the problem is what's being cured by the alcohol. By the time we're adults, we've all become alcoholics. That's to say, we've all evolved ways of deadening certain feelings and thoughts. One of the reasons we admire or like art, if we do, is that it reopens us in some sense. As Kafka wrote in a letter, Art breaks the sea that's frozen inside us. It reminds us of sensitivities that we might have lost at some cost. Freud gets at this in Beyond the Pleasure Principle. It's as though one is struggling to be as inert as possible and struggling against one's inertia. Okay, that's Adam Phillips. Then, listen, if you're listening to this podcast, you know what you're in for, which is the ultimate, the iconic Sarah Shulman. And this is from Gentrification of the Mind. As in the mid-20th century, one of the things we need to work out for ourselves is a true definition of happiness. Are we being duped by gentrified happiness? And can we find pleasure in something more complex, more multidimensional, and therefore more dynamic? Can we be happy with uncomfortable awareness that other people are real? Fuck. So, I just was sick in bed for two weeks, and... I know what it's about, I'm out of it, and it's okay. Um, I started watching the United States of Terra, which has completely rocked my world for a million reasons, and like, if you don't know what it is, it's this 2009 Diablo Cody show that was on Showtime, starring Tony Collette as um, uh, an artist and a mother in suburban hell who has dissociative identity disorder and who has multiple identities. Um, and I was like, I think I was always like trepidatious of it because I was like, okay, this is going to be another like Bush era deconstruction of suburbia, but it actually came out Obama's first year and it is very much like a Circa Weeds Showtime Enterprise. So it does still have that aspect, but like it is so, it is so fucking good. But something that's just been like hanging with me, which just, I just can't get it out of my head is like. You know, Toni Collette plays this woman who has multiple identities and she, she does each each personality aspect so well. But when she comes back to being Tara, which is just like the person, like the host of all these altars, she just looks enervated. She just looks tired and scared. And 
it it's it made me so sad to see that to see that in a character that you're really rooting for because i wish i could forgive myself for not being able to wake up perfectly and wake up when i want to be awake wake up when the rest of the world is awakening and wake up and stay awake and listen my saturn is in capricorn but it's always gonna probably for me i don't think this hypochondrian will necessarily go anywhere um for me it's always going to be about expanding and then contracting and there will be some times when you have to contract and there will be some times when i can't be as useful to the world around me where i can't read the news where i can't be here but through that i i think it's possible for me to learn in silence maybe and in darkness what i've done wrong how i can change and maybe how my specific gifts can be useful to making a change and it also means that it means that those contractions always will mean that some part of me feels threatened some part of me that wants me to stay quiet or wants me to stay asleep or wants me to stay useless feels threatened and I all I can do is keep pissing it off with that in mind I wanted to introduce the guest for the very first episode of the new season I am really delighted and honored that he spoke to me um, so candidly and at a time when he must be really exhausted um eliel cruz is the director of communications for the new york anti-violence project he's been essential in getting recognition and public honor for people like Leilene kubelet polanco extravaganza a trans woman of color who died in rikers for absolutely no reason she should not have died there she should not have been there and Eliel is one of the champions um, of causes that that represent um, people like Leilene. And over the past few months, Eliel has been a real beacon and leader, um, especially for people like me who are really learning a, a lot about this shit and dealing with our own hangups uh, for the first time. So I really hope you enjoy this interview with Eliel Cruz. Was there a process for you in developing um, the voice you have now, which is able to be empathic, um, considerate, well-researched, um, and powerful, cogent, clear? You know, did, was there like a process for you to develop um, this kind of muscle? And, and was there like a, a point in your career where you feel like you you kind of got it? Um, I, I never want to be someone who gets it. I think, I think one of the things that I try to make sure I always have over the forefront of my mind that I, I'm always learning and I'm always listening to elders and other colleagues and people, you know, in movement spaces that can, that I can learn from and become a better organizer, a better communicator. Um, I think the specific type of work that I do in communications and I hold like a very unique kind of role because not all directors of communications are like organizers and like or are they like on the ground in the way that i am so like i hold a very specific role at, at abp and even i think this role wasn't necessarily meant to be this way for me but i just kind of adapted to my skill set um but i think like communications generally is what i was drawn to particularly because i felt so disempowered to tell my story growing up and um in fact you know faced violence whenever i was able to finally have the courage to speak my truth that i through trial and error you know began to share my experience and my story in really conservative religious spaces as a way to like humanize um myself and my community um as 
as we see, I think in pretty much any movement spaces, like marginalized communities can be spoken about in such a theoretical and dehumanizing fashion mm -hmm. that it's important for me as someone who does communications to um, help empower others to share their stories in a way that can um, center their experiences and um, create space for them to share their own stories. I don't really believe that people don't aren't don't don't have the you know capacity or capabilities to share their experiences and stories. They just don't have the platform. So I really see my role to as a way to like leverage my own privilege and platforms and access to other platforms to create space for survivors to be able to tell their own stories, if that makes sense. Yeah, and um, the way you you put it um, of, of feeling disempowered, I think I, I can speak for myself, like throughout June, I kept having these experiences where I would be at um, a protest and I would feel this rush of finally speaking truth to power like losing my voice screaming. And then I would kind of go into a shock state because a part of me that is from my own past that has felt disempowered or is conditioned to be in, uh, disempowered would kind of spin out. And I would kind of have these inner crises of, of not being able to recognize what was going on around me, you know, it, it was such like a, an intense, it still is such an intense period. And I'm just curious, like if you've ever battled that when you've been out and, and speaking out the way you have, if you've ever felt, um, you know, those, those old parts of you feel either disempowered or paralyzed and, and, and how you deal with that. Um, I think I always face, I mean, I think it just depends on the context. Um, I mean, I always feel like if I'm going to give a keynote or just speaking, I always get a little bit nervous beforehand, um, which I think is normal and and good. Um, but I think I'm 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 quite used to speaking now at this point, or like trying to um, mobilize people, because um, that's really what happened in June for me. Like I think you said really beautiful and nice things about how you saw me show up but I, I think that June for a lot of organizers and a lot of people I think we all felt like we had been preparing for that moment for our like entire lives careers because mm -hmm. you had this mass awakening of people and people looking for a direction and trying to figure out how to plug in and those of us who have been doing work in movement spaces for a long time were like all right now now is the time to really like you know direct and move people um, so I'm unsure, I'm not sure I necessarily feel currently, I, um, I mean, I definitely face roadblocks of people who don't, who, um, I have to work really hard to convince that the story that needs to be told is important enough for people's limited capacity to take on. I find that a lot in media, um, when there is a story I mean, for example, I had to email, <laughs> I had to email and call seven or eight, I probably shouldn't say this, but whatever. Um, I, I had, I had to email seven or eight, you know, email and call seven or eight different editors and journalists at the New York Times before they covered Laylene Polanco's story in June. Um, really? over, the, over the video that showed correctional officers who laughed over her, her dead body, um, as well as then um, things moved, started to move quicker when um, the mayor un announced that they would be disciplining 17 staffers in relation to her death. But it took like three and a half weeks, the like very intense emails of me saying, I am disappointed in the That's time. unbelievable. We're not covering this. And I know, and like, it's a, it's a complicated thing because it is really about like media stuff is about like capacity. Hundreds of journalists have been have been laid off in this pandemic and continue to get laid off because the the way that that field is set up is awful um, and such. So maybe maybe in those times when I'm trying to convince certain certain platforms and media um, folks that they they that this is indeed um, a priority to take on, I can maybe have some of that kind of flashbacks. Um, but generally. Um, 
I feel pretty empowered to to speak out and um, on the things that I'm certain about and um, step back and listen on the things that I'm not. Um, with the coverage and the kind of ongoing, because with Leilene Polanco's death, it's it seems like it's been um, a roller coaster of a year since it happened last June because earlier this summer it was said, you know, the district attorney said um, there's no criminality um, mm-hmm. in what happened to her. And then in June, right, we found out that actually there's videotape showing criminality. So I'm just curious what you think um, – what is the cause for for this to be such a mess? I mean, and then hearing your side of it, which is that after all of that, you, you were still kind of having to demand for this to be heard. Like, what is the cause of this being such a, a, a nationwide catastrophe that when a trans woman, uh, a trans woman of color um, dies, that there's so it, it's as if. there's like this mystification around it. I mean, people, it sounds like people are acting like they don't know how to cover it or they don't know how to like carry out justice as if, as if this has never happened before. And and I'm wondering like what you think the cause of that is. Yeah. I mean, the coverage piece again, I think the, the, the reporters that ended up being finally being able to take it on, like they're really great and they know how to cover the story. It's really just about like, capacity for most things and so i'm having to like fight with a new cycle that is never ending and trying to be like this needs to be raised up to the you know to the importance for you to spend the x amount of hours that it takes in order for you to cover it um i mean in terms of it being such a mess i mean the criminal legal system is working the way it's supposed to be (laughs) in that it, it it is it is it is set up and used to to target and profile and imprison black and brown communities disproportionately. Um, it's doing it's being it's doing that purposefully in terms of how trans women of color are, you know, um, are are dying at the hands of police and 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 and, and in the jails. Similar, <laughs> um, but but it how do I say this in. In prison specifically, you know, you're, you're, you have the prison system is violent, period. But then you have a prison system that is set up to be very binary, and um, trans people face violence when they're housed in the incorrect gender, you know, unit. Trans people face violence when they're housed in the correct gender, you know, unit. I, it's yeah. I mean, I'm unsure how to how to say it anymore. Uh, of why it's you know a mess, um, but the response was interesting to me from the Bronx DA specifically around the Polanco's case because it there's so, there's so many clear omissions in the report. It took you know a year to do, or I guess it took technically six months to do, but a year from her death uh, to do. And there's like there was two reports that came out, one from the Bronx DA and one from the Department of Investigation. And there are things that are like not highlighted in the Bronx DH report that is highlighted mm. in the Department of Investigations report um, that it just clearly shows like discrepancies. And like the Bronx DA reviewed that footage that was released um, before in, in the report. So like she decided there was no criminality while she had watched that video. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like she right. watched that video the past six months. She actually has multiple different angles. That's just one angle that we have that we can release. There are like six or seven different angles. And she's watched all of that and decided there was no criminality. I mean, in terms of why it's a mess, it's just the way it's it's set up. And unfortunately, it takes an attention of thousands and thousands of people demanding justice for any kind of response to happen. Like, I don't, like, we're not going to, get justice within the criminal legal system for Leilene Polanco. Like, that's just not going to happen. Um, but it takes this many people paying attention. It takes her name trending. It takes me and other staffers at AVP spending literally hundreds of hours over the past year to get 17 people just disciplined and not even fired over her death. And a kind of promise that solitary may kind of potentially end in October-ish, maybe. <laughs> like, it's 
it, it takes a lot to try to correct this really, I don't even say it's a broken system, but just like this system that is um, violent, which is why so many of us are calling for it to be abolished. In a situation like this, which is so, um, I can't even imagine how exacerbating and frustrating and also um, how many kind of twists and turns there's been as someone uh, like you who's been so close to it. Is it difficult to retain optimism? Um, um, <laughs> I know. I, 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 yeah, and you don't need to spin that positively. I just mean no, I I this is so emotionally complicated, so I, I'm just curious how you hold it. Yeah. So I'm actually quite optimistic generally, but that I hate, I don't want to say that in a way that makes people think that I'm always happy because <laughs> does that make sense? So like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm actually only able to do the work that I do because I'm optimistic because I believe that we can create a better world and that if, if enough of us actually gave a damn about each other and showed up, every day in whatever ways that we can in the ways that we know we should to do something to create some type of good in this world that we can actually create a better world like that's the only way i'm able to wake up every day talk about literally all i talk about every single day is sexual and physical violence against lgbt people that's all i talk about for 50 something hours a week <laughs> so like i i would actually the only way i'm able to do this work is because i'm optimistic and i can get angry and frustrated and um, super depressed over the, the continued violence that happens and the response, um, you know, we have either the lack of response we have from community or the horrendous responses we're getting from, from you know, district attorneys or police or, you know, whatever. Like, yeah, the, that that shit hurts and it sucks and it brings me to a, to a low and a down. And it's health, the way I'm able to, like, get up and, and remember... Um, and just kind of continue, I guess, is 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 by knowing that we. I, I, I genuinely believe <laughs> we can do better. We can create a better space um, and a better world. So, I am very optimistic. It's the way I. It's the only way I'm able to do my work. Um, and that doesn't, you know, translate to me having the best days all the time and being super happy about where we're at all the time. <laughs> so that was kind of why I was like, eh, I don't know how to answer this 100, percent but yes. No, no, no. That's the the perfect answer. Yeah, I just I think I'm turning to you because I feel like I and a lot of people I know are being freshly exposed to things that you have had to um, deal with for a lot longer. And I know that I personally have experienced over this like a lot of I've learned so much, but I've experienced like a lot of what feels like paralyzing grief or shock or shame or guilt. And I guess I'm, I'm just curious, like if you have any advice for, for moving through those kind of painful, um, stupefying um, feelings that come up when, when you're hitting, hitting the pavement and speaking truth to power. Like, do you have any advice for people who are, who want to be of service and who are maybe having a hard time um, reckoning with everything? Mm, I think, I, I, I want to like continue to encourage people to, who are losing hope, especially those who are looking around them and are seeing a majority of people trying to look away mm. at, um, as a way to kind of find some sense of normalcy again. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people who have claimed to have quote unquote gotten it. Um, <laughs> like, kind of just like try to move on in a really, in a, in a weird way. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. No, it, it is. Because really it's just like, you, you have either actually not understood what, what has happened in this country in the past few months, or you have and you are actively choosing to ignore it. I actually, I've had, I had some, <laughs> I had some conversations with some white close friends of mine 
um, over the weekend, I spent a couple hours on the phone with a couple of them and I asked them, <laughs> this may be a little bit direct, but I asked them two questions. Um, I asked them, could you, could you talk to me, could you talk to me and share with me what the past two months have been like for you? And mm-hmm. the second question was in 50 years, when your grandchildren ask you about the uprisings and what happened in this year, are you going to be proud to share about the ways that you've shown up? Which was like, <laughs> which is like really like kind of I guess direct because some people were t- some of my friends were really taken back by that. But I think that like that question needs to be asked um, of everyone, of all of us, um, continually. Um, are we showing up in the ways that we know we can? Will we be proud about the ways that we're showing up? Um, you know, moving forward, because um, I find it to be an obscene use an obscene show of privilege um, for people who have claimed to have gotten it and have done some kind of performative um, steps, but are slowly trying to get back to their normal life and such. And that's not to say that we shouldn't have off times and we shouldn't tan and be on the rooftops and have fun with friends. Like that's not what I'm saying, but to, to not find tangible and actionable ways to include and incorporate, um, your your anti-racist work your your work and support and your role in a broader movement to dismantle systems of oppression to not be active in trying to figure out that um to me is 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 quite um frustrating and even offensive um but for individuals who are still trying to remain in struggle as aspiring allies, as um, co-conspirators, um, and are trying to find some semblance of hope. Um, I'm quite uplifted by the amount of people who have been mobilized and continue to be mobilized and are continuing, and, are, and, the, and the ones that are refusing to move on. Like, I remember, you know, last year in April, we ADP co-organized with local New York and um, Communities United for Police Reform a vigil for a Black queer man who was shot and killed by the police. Um, you know, 30 people came. Right, <laughs> and, right. And so it's like really, so I'm, as, you know, as someone who works in an organization who does, who has organized a number of vigils and rallies and have supported other vigils and rallies by other organizations and 50, 50 people showing up is like a success because <laughs> for us, because people don't care. People don't care enough, actually. Um, not really, because if people did, they would, they would, they would show up. Um, so it, I'm actually quite, um, I have a lot of hope from what has happened the last few months. And I think that it's important for all of us to like kind of hold on to that. Like, I think I shared something on social where it was like, look around you, see the people on the streets, like you're not alone. I think it can feel very overwhelming for myself included, because there, this it, it kind of feels impossible. It feels like an impossible task when you finally start to connect the dots and see how embedded oppression is in in our entire fabric of society. It feels fucking overwhelming. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> and and and, but I think the way that you're able to like you're able to um, find some hope again is by finding a community of people who are committed to doing. Um, you know, who are committed to working alongside you or, you know, and, and working with you, finding that community who you can check in with and continue to do whatever work makes sense for you to do. Um, and to know that it, it really takes all of us doing our part. So as long as you're showing up in, in whatever, you know, ways that you, that you have the skill set to show up um, for in terms of trying to create social change, if all of us do that and we are self-reflective and are showing up, like this work becomes easier. It becomes, it, it becomes because we're all lifting. You know what I mean? I've gotten a lot of thank yous, a lot of thank yous, especially from a lot of white gay men over the last few months. And for a couple of them, I've actually just said, like the best thank you for, for me would be for you to show up. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like the best thank you would be for you to also do your part. So I think um, keeping hope um, by finding your community of people, there are a lot of people who have just had kind of an awakening. Um, create some type of support system in your in in that community of people, however big or small I may be. Um, and knowing that if you do your part, 
and your community and your neighbors and your and your friends and family try to show up and do their part like this work does become easier like we can we do have collective power to make a substantive change you know i'll say your second question about um when you are telling your uh descendants about this in 50 years like will you be proud or will you be ashamed you know my initial reaction was i'm ashamed and i think a month ago, I would have just ended it there and been like, well, that's it. I don't want to think about this anymore. This makes me feel bad. So that's that. And I don't want to deal talking to you now. Actually, the optimism aspect does have a part to play in that because then I can say, okay, bitch, you're feeling ashamed now. Like, what can you start to do or incorporate differently? And that's like maybe a part of it that I, I think there was, I didn't, you know, it, it it's so easy to like turn on yourself and make yourself feel guilty and not use the shame productively. Hmm. And like the shame, there can be an optimistic aspect. It's really tricky and it's a complicated needle to thread, but like from the shame that can inspire movement and action and like, okay, you, there's still time. Like you can, someone like me can get going, you know? Yeah. And I think that like, we don't have to, you know, people don't have to all show up in the same way in the same capacity. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that like, it's not all of us are going to be able to show up in the most radical ways. Um, And if you haven't shown up in the last few months in the ways that you are proud of, that doesn't mean that you can't still, like there's still not time (laughs) for you to show up and, and, and do your part. Um, But I also think that, that, um, that like, idea that not everyone can show up in the most radical way also keeps a lot of people from showing up in the ways that they should. I don't know. I don't know how to say that. Like I, like I find um, a lot of white queer people in the past couple of months finding various excuses to like not physically show up um, and doing um, kind of like social media posts and donations and such. And I'm like, and I'm balancing the reality that like not everyone can physically show up, like for a variety of reasons, for like um, immigration status, for you know, they they may not be able-bodied and in, in, in you know, in a way that they can physically show up or um, X Y Z. But there was a lot of people who were just like nervous and scared and um, and worried about their safety, um, which all makes sense, um, and so does everyone else, you know, and. Uh, those are all the same concerns that people have and people um, still made it to the streets. I think, you know, I think from my, from, from that perspective, like the reason I was really fascinated by what you went through eight eight years ago to now of having to really combat a lot of the conditioning and upbringing you came up with through your work. I think for a lot of people, there's a lot of like ugly questions that they don't, and I'm speaking for myself, like when I, I've gone to quite a few protests and it brings up a lot of questions that I, I maybe have never wanted to ask about my relationship with authority. Mm. So I think there's something about, I mean, this isn't news to you, but <laughs> I think that for a lot of people who are able-bodied, it is, it, it's a scary threshold to cross, but unfortunately, like for people of color, like they've been forced to cross that threshold every day for a long, long time, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, so a, a white friend of mine reached out, a white gay friend of mine reached out um, in June and was like, I don't know if you remember this, but like two years ago, when you came over, uh, you know, one summer, you were talking about police and you said that you would not call the police as your first option <laughs> and that you feel unsafe about police. And we, me and my husband just did not understand that. Well, we can do now. <laughs> like, I, like, you know, like I, I think for a lot of us, the police have not been an option. The police, you know, I've, I've only really had kind of violent experiences with police. Um, and um, uh, for a lot of people, we don't really necessarily feel like we have a choice in to show up in the way we do. And I, and I would say that, like, how do I say this? So, like, I think that, like, white people not showing up is an obscene use of, pro- like, use of provincial privilege. And I think that, like, Black people and other, like, who decide that they want to not show up is, like, radical <laughs> because like I because, like i'm like yeah you should actually stay the fuck home and like chill and like do whatever you want you know what i mean because it's actually there's like a different dynamic 
happening. There's a reclamation aspect. Um, someone I know, Eudora Peterson, who's a comedian I love, she posted at the start of it, like, hey, white people, I actually don't need you to reach out to me right now. Like, I actually need to just be taking care of myself. And and it was, it was radical because I was like, oh, wow, she's actually like stating terms for once mm-hmm. and people have to respect them, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I, no, I just no, not at all. I I I, I, I forget what I was, I was even going about. Anyways, it's fine. Um, but um, I forget what the initial question was. But I, yeah, I, I agree. I think that I think that people of color finding pockets of joy and rest is radical, and I think that um, we need to continue. We need white people and, and even you know non-black people of color to continue to do some self-assessments and figure out if we feel like we are doing what we can and should be doing like i think it's a moral obligation for anyone who is alive <laughs> like that's just like I, I yeah and that again that's necessarily mean that you have to show up in the streets though i do think that more people need to um kind of self-evaluate why why they're if they're able-bodied and able to like why they're not doing that and it and are you just like are you just yeah are you just like sitting in your own like privilege by being unmovable um with that um and again if you can't show up on the streets for whatever reasons like what are there's so many things that people can be doing to contribute to social change um whether that be childcare for people who are showing up to the streets supporting organizers who you know need support petitions and and calls and volunteering and money and like there's like so much of, like we need we need people to be doing all types of roles and it's just making sure that you fill a role like what is your role and figuring out what that is and showing up to do that and i think the thing that i have i'm coming to terms with now is the self-assessment is going to take a really for me the self-assessment is going to take a really long time it's going to be it has been and it's going to continue to be very painful but i i can't treat this as something that's going again, I, I, I don't, I, if uh, there's no point where I'm going to be like, Oh, okay. I got it. Like yeah. good that I did all that soul, like soul searching. I am like cooked and ready to go. Like let's fight racism. It's going to have to be showing up and self-assessing concurrently over a long period of time and like taking care of ourselves along the way. So like this, this is not, this can't all be resolved this week. We have to just do our very, very best and show up. Absolutely. And I think the taking care of yourself piece is the hardest part for a lot of activists. Um, we end up deprioritizing ourselves um, and forget that we also need to take care of ourselves in order to like, so like I started going to therapy after I, the, the vigil that Ephra mentioned um, black queer man that was shot and killed by the police because I couldn't stop crying for three days. <laughs> like I was just in meetings about like other stuff and I was like crying. It was just like not good. Um, and like six months into therapy, I realized that I was going to therapy not because I wanted to like take care of myself, but because I was trying to like stretch myself like further to do more work. And like that like reframing was like, oh, I was like, this is the good. <laughs> like I can't, I can't like, I'm only taking care of myself so I can do more work. Like that's not healthy. (laughs) Like that's not good. Um, So I actually, so I actually think that piece for, especially for a lot of new activists is the hardest part and something that I am still a hundred percent struggling with because um, it feels almost selfish to, to do, to like take care of ourselves in a way that is substantial and meaningful, but it is so deeply necessary because this is very much a marathon, not a sprint. I know June was really intense, but I think that I know that like a lot of organizers were just trying to squeeze as much out as we could of that moment, knowing that it was going to be, this is long-term work, but we had so many people activated. What can we, what are the big steps that we could take, you know, in a shorter period of time? Um, But that kind of, that that second piece, I think is, 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 has been the hardest for me. And I hope that for people who are really out here and learning and like are fighting for, potentially maybe even their first times that they're taking that very seriously as a way to sustain themselves and not just to do more work, but because they also like, we deserve to be whole and to like be okay and be good and be well. My therapist this week said to me that like, it's really capitalist, this like 
Because I have similarly been like, okay, well, I why aren't I feeling better so that I can be doing more? Um, and, and not doing more necessarily <laughs> activism-wise, but also just like in my own personal life. And she was like, it's really capitalist to like be this constant pushing for like results out of your own healing. Like it's mm-hmm. so not how it works at all, but it's part of like this capitalist thing of like, well, why not? You know, why can't I, uh, why aren't I feeling better? You know, that sort of thing, that expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Why not? Totally. Better? Probably because I'm not being there myself. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to, the last thing I want to ask is um, at a lot of these, at a lot of the protests I've been at, but I would say that the, um, the March for, for trans lives um, that was based at the Brooklyn Museum. Um, That was like one of the most, I don't know, I'll never forget it for as long as I live. And like, thank you so much for everything you did to make that happen. Like, it's just, it was such a turning point, I think for a lot of us. Um, And there was something kind of utopian about that day. And there were some parts of that day that I just felt like, oh, this is what I want life to be like which is like i just felt like you know after so many months of with the the virus of of there being such a scarcity mentality of our government can't even provide you know our government couldn't even provide enough masks or or tests you know there was just this lack this constant lack and then in that queer space I just felt this huge surge of generosity and love and like we could all, whatever any of us needed that the rest of us could provide, like Mm -hmm. you don't even need to ask. And Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, like, I I really, I want to use that day, that day and and all of these past um, protests to kind of dream up a better world. And, I'm just curious, like, if you can share any, I'm trying to word this, if you can share anything about what you would like the future to look like, like what you would want, we're so in it right now. And I'd like to know what is the kind of better world that that you'd like us to be in Hmm. or or what that would look like, or, you know, what you've seen that could inspire that. Mm -hmm. That's very broad. Hmm. Well, I mean, I will, I will say um, I'm, I'm so glad you were able to come to Brooklyn Liberation. It was <laughs> it was a whirlwind, and a lot happened in seven days. Was that we did we organized uh, in about seven eight days? It went from you know a handful of us um, in an initial call to a team of almost 150 people um, in a week. So that was it was really incredible, and I I think I still need to. I'm trying to take more time off soon, <laughs> and I want to like sit with some of these things that have happened in June because. I don't think I sat with um, Brooklyn Liberation nearly enough. Um, but I think like what, what you're saying about Brooklyn Liberation and also like a lot of other protests, this um, how people showed up for each other is is really important, right? Because um, when people who ask, what do we do when we're, you know, when people are calling and we're calling to abolish the police um, and we say we can create safety in the community, um, Things like Brooklyn Liberation is an example of that, right? It, it sh- and other protests. It shows these protests really show that if we cared enough, that we could show up for each other. That when yeah. someone is hungry, regardless if they have money or not, that they will be fed. When someone is harmed or hurt, um, like we saw with the police violently arresting and, and hurting people, that there are medics that are literally taking care of each other. That. Um, you know, that we were literally handing out PPE <laughs> at each of these protests and making sure that although we knew we had a moral obligation to show up and um, and protest and demand um, this kind of, you know, this really kind of, um, what, what is radical for a lot of people, the, the defunding of, of, of police, um, that we can show up and take care of each other if we really want to. So what is a, what is a, what does a better world look like for me? moving with intentionality throughout the spaces we occupy. So in the organizing of Brooklyn Liberation, we, tr- we really tried to be intentional in the groups that we partnered with and the voices that we centered 
um, in the feedback we we solicited from groups of people and who had different experiences than the organizers we had. And it is because of that that we were able to have this like, you know, this the resources that we did in terms of like the accessibility and the food and the voices that were, you know, that were on stage, it was, you know, it was intentional and purposeful that it was only black trans voices on that stage. And um I think it looks like for me being more intentional about about how you show up in like in your work life, in in your personal life, um, when you're where, when you're on the street and you know you see and people in need, how are you how are you motivated and driven to care enough about that person as if they were a loved one of yours? You know what I mean? Like yes. and and it's and I know that sounds like so like hippie <laughs> or like so like I don't know even what, but like. I've been in I've been in a lot of situations in my own personal life in which I, I I growing up I felt like I had no one and I, I I know a lot of people feel that way too today and if we can each commit to being that person for someone even if we don't know them personally I think we can I know we can save lives I know that's kind of like vagueish and that looks very concretely in different ways I think that looks concretely in, in New York City, like having people trained with bicenter intervention training so that like, if you see things escalating on the subway, you don't just put your headphones on and look away, but that you step in as a fellow New Yorker, as a fellow person to deescalate the situation and potentially curb and continue violence. You know what I mean? It looks like contributing and uh, contributing to these amazing like refrigerators that are popping up in Brooklyn um, with mutual aid to make sure that people are fed um, if they're hungry. It looks like showing up to make sure that people you don't know are not going to be illegally evicted in the middle of pandemic and you're holding them that space because if you needed someone to show up, um, you know, you'd want someone there to be there too. So there's some very specific concrete ways, I guess, but um, it looks to me like being intentional about the way we kind of inhabit this this world um, and that we show the type of care and compassion and empathy um, that we would want for ourselves. That's a perfect answer. <laughs> you actually slayed that. Okay. Um, so where can people follow you? Because I follow you and I get like such a rich bastion of information every day. So I'm, uh, how can people be following you? Yeah. Um, my Twitter is just my name, Eliel Cruz, E-L-I-E-L-C-R-U-Z. My Instagram is the Eliel Cruz because whoever has just Eliel Cruz, I don't know. He won't give it up. Um, probably straight. Yeah, I know. It's like it's like I. It's, he has like fifteen followers and it's locked. And um, Selena Gomez tried to tried to tag me in something like two three weeks ago, but she tagged that person instead. So I'm like, I'm like whoever has my name. Um, um, but yeah, that is the most bizarre karma, by the way, that it's Selena Gomez. It's but yeah, so sorry, weird. keep going. It was so funny to me. I was like, someone was like, Selena Gomez tagged you. And I was like, no, she's not. And I looked and I was like, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> um, yeah, that's where you can follow me um, on Twitter and Instagram. And um, you can follow me for kind of my, um, I talk a lot about my work. Um, and yeah, I'm a work in progress. I think it's important for us to all, you know, I, I'm happy that you and other people have found. Um, some type of um, content or, or a, you know, a knowledge that you can like kind of garner from the things that I'm sharing and I'm a work in progress and I'm going to make mistakes and I'm, I'm trying to continue to learn as much as I can. So as long as people engage me and other people like that, I think, um, yeah. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for your patience and your generosity um, and your ferocity. I, it's really, it's essential. So thank you so much. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. The Luminaries is made with love in New York City, distributed by Authentic Media, consulting producer Carly Hugendijk, music by Henry Kapersky, and creative direction by Greg Kozatek. If you can do a mitzvah, leave a review on iTunes and tell everyone you know to listen. Until next Tuesday.